y'all. This is Jessica. And this is Amy. And we are 1096 Crime Chicks. We are back. We are back. Yay! Yay! Yes, so ready to pick up where we left off and get back in the groove. I was on vacation for a week and then the kids started school and so it's been a little hectic with uh, school and football and cheer and all those fun things that entail when children start school. So thank you guys for being patient and still listening and Amy did an excellent job on our mini-sode about Amber Hagerman. It's a tough case. It's sad. It obviously is. There's not a lot of information out there but I'm so glad you got it out there and now everybody knows where Amber Alert came from. Yes. Which is very important um, because we see them. We get them on our phones. We see them on the lottery boards at the convenience stores and so um, and the silver alerts for the elderly people. So yeah. they're very important in the community. So great job, Amy, for filling you. in on my absence there. So we are starting out with this next case, which is going to be about Joe D. Bryan. Amy and I found this case and it's very close to home for us. And so we really wanted to do it. And then lo and behold, it comes up in the media again. Yes. And so I think we're gonna have some follow-ups. Yes. I know, I mean, this is a super long case, and we had at least three episodes. If not more. Right. Yeah. It, this could be a three to four parter, depending right. on how much information we get. And with it just coming up in the news and having updates, um, this may be one we're talking about for a while. Yeah. So doing minisodes on, yeah, you know, doing some, sure. uh, some evidence uh, updates and trial updates and whatnot. So this story is, you're going to form your own opinion on it, and I'll just get to it so that way you guys can hear it out again it is a long story this happened in clifton texas back in october 15th of 1985 clifton is close to us we've both been we yes. have a friend that lives there we do and it is a beautiful beautiful little town yes it is i really enjoy driving through there it's very pretty and it, it just kind of has like an old feel to it yeah you know like everything around it has grown but to me, Clifton has kind of stayed the same as it has been mm -hmm. since probably 1985. You know, yeah. just maybe a few new businesses, but nothing that has completely changed that awesomeness about the little town feel that you get when you drive through it. Yeah. So, and even like driving to it is so pretty. It is. Going from where we are mm -hmm. in Central Texas, it's more hilly. Yes getting out there you kind of get so the hill country feel without you know driving all the way to fredericksburg and being in the hill country and so although i would love a trip to fredericksburg <laughs> you just want to go to the winery <laughs> <laughs> clifton is a great little town if you have a chance google it look it up it is definitely on the map but you got to dig for it because yeah. it's, it's a small little town if you blink you're gonna miss it yeah so but the story may have made it because this is a new york times article yes so it may have made it a little bit more popular. This is true. This is true. A lot of our information that we got was from a New York Times article, which had an abundance of information, but we also were able to find some additional information with some research and no promises, but we're hoping to maybe talk to some people that might've actually been involved in the case. And that was something we had kind of looked at doing, but now that it's back in the media, they may not be allowed to talk to us right now That's because true. it may be considered an open case again. So don't want to spoil it, but um, believe me, if we can do that, we're definitely going to do it. So, yeah. so you guys can hear it out. But uh, 
All right, so we're going to start here on Jody Bryan. Again, this is October 15th, 1985, and it's going to be the murder of Mickey Bryan. Yes. His wife. Mm-hmm. Okay. Most mornings, the sky was still black when Mickey Bryan made the short drive from her house on Avenue O through the small central Texas town of Clifton to the elementary school. Sometimes her car was the only one on the road. The red brick school building sat just south of Highway 6 and Farm to Market Road 219, a crossroad that until recent years featured the town's only sole traffic light. Mickey was always the first teacher to arrive, usually settling in at her desk by 7 a.m. The slight, soft-spoken woman with short auburn hair and a pale complexion, she prized the solitude of those early mornings before her fellow teachers appeared and the fairway sounds of children's voices signaled suddenly all at once that made the day begin. One morning, Mickey did not show up for work. It was a Tuesday in the fall of October 15, 1985, and the air was damp from a heavy rainstorm that rolled through the town the previous night. Mickey's classroom was dark when a fifth grade teacher, Susan Klein, walked by at 7.15. She stopped, puzzled, and looked inside. She tried the door, but it was locked. At first, she figured her frantically punctual friend was running off photocopies on the other side of the building. But by 8 a.m., there was still no sign of her, and Klein hurried to Principal Rex Daniels' office. Did you forget to call a sub, she asked. Mickey's not here. Daniels asked his secretary to call the Bryan home, but no one answered. He knew Mickey's husband, Joe, the longtime principal of Clifton High School, was out of town at a conference, so he directed his secretary to phone Mickey's parents, Otis and Vera Blue. They did not know where their daughter might be. They last saw her the previous afternoon when she stopped by their home on Avenue L, but they promised to go check on her right away. I felt something was wrong, Daniels later wrote in a statement for the police, and left the school to head to Mickey's house. Clifton lies 100 miles southwest of Dallas on an empty stretch of prairie land gouged by creeks and river valleys. The town was and remains to this day populated by some 3,000 people, many of them descendants of the Norwegian farmers who settled in Bosque County before the Civil War. Both Bryans were familiar and beloved around town. Mickey, who was 44, once held the title of Miss Clifton High School, an honor bestowed on by her classmates, though she shied away from attention. She was guarded, even around the few people she allowed to get close, while Joe, who was a year her senior, thrived on human connection. Warm and expressive with the gift of putting people at ease, he had an open, friendly face and blue eyes that were always animated behind his large, wire-rimmed glasses. At the high school, he was an ebullient presence, an educator with such enthusiasm for his job that at Friday night football games, he seemed to be everywhere at once, calling out to students and their extended families without stumbling over a name. Mickey and Joe had known each other since elementary school. They first crossed paths when Joe, who grew up on a farm about 40 miles southeast of Clifton on the outskirts of Waco, visited a cousin in nearby Moshim, where the Blues lived. They did not begin dating until more than two decades later in 1968 when they were earning master's degrees in education, she at Baylor University in Waco and he at Trinity University in San Antonio. Joe was getting over the dissolution of a four-year marriage that had never taken root, and in Mickey, he found a centering force. Mickey was quiet, unflappable, and fiercely practical, a woman who, despite the norms of Texas beauty, eschewed makeup and favored flats. She was charmed by Joe's demonstrativeness, and when he told a story about her or publicly praised her, as he often did, she patted his arm with bashful affection. They wed in 1969 in a private ceremony in the home of Joe's childhood pastor. Mickey did not want the fuss of a church wedding. 
The Bryans shared a sense of purpose. They believed in the transformative power of teaching. And when they moved to Clifton in 1975, after Joe was offered the job of principal, they immersed themselves deeply in the lives of their students. If families' budgets fell short, Joe and Mickey stepped in, quietly paying for hot lunches, senior trips, and new clothes. Together, they devoted part of each summer to devise lesson plans for Mickey's incoming fourth graders and brainstorming new ways to reach her most reluctant learners. In the evenings, Joe often sat beside Mickey and helped her grade papers. They were different from other married couples. A number of women who knew them noted appreciatively. Mickey and Joe seemed more like a team. They both loved being around children, but were never able to have any of their own, an immutable fact of their marriage that seemed to only draw them closer. Nearly every evening, they went on long walks around Clifton, where it was common to see them strolling hand in hand down the town's wide residential streets, absorbed in conversation. Which totally makes sense because if you see this town, you just, you want to walk down the street. Yes, it's so pretty. Yes, and it does have the wide roads. Daniels was the first to arrive at the Bryan single-story brick home, which overlooked a well-tended yard on the southernmost edge of town. The garage's double doors were open and Mickey's Brown Oldsmobile was parked inside. The day's Waco Tribune Herald and Dallas Morning News lay in the driveway. Daniels rang the doorbell. The house was dark and quiet. Moments later, the Blues hurried up the walkway with a spare key, and Daniels followed them in. Vera led the way, calling out her daughter's name. She was the first to reach the master bedroom when she stepped inside. Daniels heard her cry out. He and Otis followed close behind her, and in the bedroom, blood was everywhere splattered across the bed, the ceiling, and all four walls. Daniels immediately took hold of Vera and instructed her and Otis to go to the living room. He did not step any further into the bedroom, but as he stood in the doorway, he could tell that Mickey was dead. Her body lay across the length of the unmade bed, her outstretched legs dangling over the mattress edge. Her pink nightgown was drawn up to the top of her thighs, and she was naked from the waist down. Daniels rushed to the phone in the kitchen and called the police. It looks like someone broke in and shot Mickey, he said. Word of the killing traveled quickly around Clifton that morning. Cindy Horn, who worked as a teacher's aide at the elementary school, said, We were all dumbfounded. We couldn't wrap our minds around it. How could anyone hurt Mickey? Amid the collective anguish and shock that everyone felt, she said our first thoughts were about Joe, that Joe was going to be completely devastated. 120 miles away at the Texas Association of Secondary School Principals Annual Conference in Austin, Joe was taken aside by the organization's executive director, Harold Massey, not long after 10 a.m. The two men had known each other for years, and as they huddled in the foyer of one of the Hyatt Regency's conference rooms, Massey got right to the point, telling Joe that what little he knew. Mickey had been shot to death in their home. Are you sure you have the correct information? Joe stammered. Mickey Ryan of Clifton, Texas? Massey helped him to a chair as he grew unsteady on his feet. Three principals whose help Massey enlisted found Joe near the check-in desk. He appeared unmoored, his face gone slack with shock. He sat by himself, holding his head in his hands. They took him upstairs to his hotel room, where he lay in bed shivering. Still dressed in his suit and tie, he pulled the covers over himself. Two longtime colleagues from Clifton, Richard Lyardon, the school superintendent, and Glenn Nix, the assistant elementary school principal, arrived around noon to take him home, and when Joe saw them, he broke down. Before he slid into the superintendent's car, Joe handed the keys to his black Mercury to one of the principals who had come to his aid. He agreed to ferry it back to the Waco area. Very little was said. Nick said of the more than two-hour drive from the state capitol to the green rolling hills of Bosque County. Joe sat in the back with his head down and cried the whole way. The Bryan home was cordoned off with yellow crime scene tape when the three men pulled up outside shortly before 3 o'clock. 
Law enforcement officers had swarmed the house, the Texas Rangers, who often aid the state's rural police departments with homicide investigations, were already on scene, as were Clifton police officers, sheriff's deputies, and technicians from the state crime lab. Days, Joe fielded investigators' questions from the superintendent's car. Of primary interest to them was whether the Bryans had any firearms in the house, and Joe explained that he had a 357 pistol in the bedroom, which he kept loaded with birdshot, to dispatch the rattlesnakes and copperheads that sometime moved in the yard. And that happens quite a lot in this area. <laughs> yes, it does. We have an abundance of snakes. The conversation was brief, and after investigators returned to their work, Joe was driven to the Blues' house where friends and neighbors had gathered to pay their respects. What am I going to do without Mickey, he asked Susan Klein again and again. When she embraced him, he held onto her as if he might fall without her support. Investigators would remain at the house until after midnight, poring over the crime scene. They had little to go on. The neighbors had not seen or heard anything unusual, and there were no leads to chase down. No bloody fingerprints that might have narrowed down the search for the killer. No shoe print impressions to try to match. No semen was also detected on the vaginal swabs that were later collected from the rape kit. Yet, slowly a picture of the crime began to emerge. Mickey had been shot four times, once in the abdomen and three times in the head. A blast to the left side of her face had been fired at extremely close range. A search of the house revealed that the 357 was missing, as was Mickey's gold wedding band, her watch, and a diamond-studded ring. Tiny lead pellets, which also lay scattered around the bedroom, were also embedded in her wounds, leading investigators to surmise that she was killed with the 357. The house displayed no obvious signs of forced entry, but a Texas ranger who found the back door locked was unable to conclude whether it had been secured before or after officers arrived. A cigarette butt was discovered on the kitchen floor, though neither of the Bryans smoked. Taken together, the evidence seemed to point in one direction. Mickey had been the victim of a burglary turned homicide. Hoping to glean new insights, the Texas Rangers called in Robert Thorman, a detective with Harker Heights Police Department in nearby Bell County, who arrived that evening. Thorman was trained in a forensic discipline called blood stain pattern analysis, whose practitioners regard the drops, spatters, and trails of blood at a crime scene as treasure troves of information that contain previously unseen clues and can even illuminate the precise choreography of the crime itself. Thorman peered through his magnifying glass, moving it in slow, sweeping motions. I'm sorry, that kind of reminds me of like Shakespeare and Watson. <laughs> What I think of that and magnifying glass. Now, this gentleman that was trained in bloodstain pattern analysis, we're going to talk about later on and learn yes. about his training, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Mickey's body had been removed by then. Only the baby blue mattress, which was sodden with blood, remained. But he surveyed the reddish-brown flecks that dabbled the walls, studying their contours and dimensions. He tacked strings to five small bloodstains on the wall above the headboard, extending each strand down to the mattress below. But his work, in the end, yielded little new information, just a theory that Mickey's killer had most likely been standing on the west side of the bed when he or she fired a gun. As investigators went about their work, Joe spent the night with his mother, Thelma, in Elmont, the small town north of Waco, where she lived. She had moved there after Joe and his siblings, his older brother James and his twin brother Jerry, left home and had remained after their father's death. Joe lay awake, his mind racing until exhaustion overtook him. At the funeral home in Clifton the following day, he learned that Joe Wiley, the Texas Ranger who was helming the investigation, 
For some reason, I keep thinking of Chuck Norris. <laughs> Are you picturing Chuck Norris right now? Yes. I'm pretty sure he probably did not look like him. All right. Yeah. We'll okay. On. So, he learned that Joe Wiley, the Texas Ranger who was helming the investigation, wanted to speak with him, and he headed over to the police station. A career lawman who had spent 15 years as a highway patrolman before being promoted to the state's premier law enforcement division, Wiley cultivated an air of unassailability, his face impassive under the brim of his white western hat. He carried himself with the assurance of someone who could get to the bottom of the mystery that lay before him. Joe did not take a lawyer with him, nor did the direction of the investigation suggest he should. Despite Wiley's brusque, no-nonsense style, the interview was not an adversarial one. As Wiley led him through a series of routine questions about Mickey, their marriage, and the days leading up to the murder, Joe explained that nothing seemed out of the ordinary the last time he spoke with his wife. He told Wiley that he called her from his hotel around 9 p.m. on Monday, October 14th, the night before her absence from school. He had been watching the Country Music Awards, and she had been averaging grades. She was in good spirits, he added, and they talked about the rain. The Texas Ranger listened as Joe talked, but shared few details about the investigation, mentioning only that they had found the metal box in which Joe told them the previous day he and Mickey kept $1,000 in cash. But there was no money in it. The box was covered in dust, suggesting that no one had recently disturbed it. Wiley advised him to look around the house to see if it might have placed the money somewhere else. Joe had no theories to offer about the crime, and the interview did not produce any new leads. Mr. Bryan indicated to the writer that he would have no idea who would want to kill his wife, Wiley noted in his report. Wiley and the other investigators working on the case needed more, and fast. This was a second unsolved murder that year in a town where people routinely left their doors unlocked and no one could easily recall the last homicide. Just four months earlier, on June 19th, Wiley was called to Clifton to investigate the killing of a 17-year-old named Judy Whitley. Her nude body was discovered in a dense cedar thicket on the western side of town. The details of the crime scene shocked Clifton residents. Ligature marks scarred the teenager's wrist, indicating that she had been bound, and gray duct tape covered her mouth. The medical examiner would later determine that she was sexually assaulted and died of suffocation. Wiley assisted with the Whitley case, which was still no closer to being solved. When Mickey was killed less than a mile away, it sent another jolt of panic through the community. The inability of law enforcement to make a single arrest only stoked residents' fear and uncertainty about whether the crimes were random acts of violence or somehow linked. Susan Klein, the teacher whose classroom was across the hall from Mickey's and who lived alone, began spending the night at her sister's house, where she always slept with a gun within reach. Now that is scary. Yeah. Two unsolved homicides in this small town. I can see where the community would definitely be um, scared and yeah, fearful, you know. For sure. Though Wiley and the other investigators working on the Bryan case were under enormous pressure to make an arrest, they struggled to develop any new information. In the days after Mickey was killed, the Texas Department of Public Safety flew a helicopter over the pasture near the Bryan home looking for clothing that might have been discarded by a transient who was reported to have been in the area. Rangers questioned members of a concrete crew who were working on a house on Avenue O and examined the shoes and pants of a yardman who was believed to have been in the vicinity of the Bryan home on the morning Mickey was found. They interviewed the family of a teenage girl who saw a peeping Tom at her bedroom a few nights earlier. It wasn't much. Then, on Saturday, October 19th, four days after the murder, Wiley got his first break, 
when he learned that Charlie Blue, Mickey's older brother, had some important information. Blue, who lived in Plant County, Florida, where he served as the vice president of an agrochemical company, had managed to catch a flight to Texas that Tuesday after learning of his sister's death. The siblings were not especially close. Blue's forceful personality had always stood in stark contrast to his sister's soft-spokenness, and though there was no animosity between them, they had not spoken since he came to visit in February, eight months before her death. Joe was not particularly close with his brother-in-law either, but the two men had a cordial relationship. Joe had helped out from time to time around the farm in Clifton that Blue owned, and together they built fences, vaccinated cattle, and mended water lines. As Blue would recount in a sworn affidavit he wrote the following week, it was that Friday with no apparent progress in the case that he decided to call Bud Saunders, an ex-FBI agent turned private investigator who was on retainer with his geochemical company. I asked Bud Saunders if he would come to Clifton and do some checking as there were some things that were bothering me about my sister's death, Blue explained in his affidavit. Blue did not tell Joe that he was bringing a private investigator to town or share with his brother-in-law what was troubling him. Saunders wasted no time. He made the 300-mile trip from West Texas City of Midland, where he lived, arriving at the Dairy Queen in Clifton the next afternoon, which is still there, by the way. Yes. <laughs> I went into the Dairy Queen and suggested to Bud that we leave and ride around so I could discuss my concerns, Blue wrote. We drove around the countryside for a while, talking about the murder. The two men were in Joe's car, which Blue borrowed the day after Mickey was found dead. He'd asked Joe if he could use it for the duration of his stay, and Joe, who was being driven between Elmont and Clifton by family members, had been glad to oblige. At some point during the drive, according to Blue, he pulled over so that he and Saunders could relieve themselves, and Saunders ended up getting mud on his boots. Looking for something to clean them up with, Blue opened the trunk. Immediately, he spotted a cardboard box with a flashlight inside whose lens was facing up. I noticed that there was what to have appeared to be blood spatters on the lens, Blue wrote. He handed the flashlight to Saunders, who agreed that the tiny, dark flecks indeed looked like blood. Blue and Saunders drove back into town with the flashlight, sewed in the trunk, and headed toward the Bryan home. I knew the cleanup and painting crew had been working on the house and thought that some of the officers might be there, Blue wrote. Finding the house unattended and the front door unlocked, Blue and Saunders decided to let themselves in. Discovering no one there, they left, drove to a payphone, and called the Texas Rangers. Hi, I think I would know if nobody was there. Why are you going to walk in? Exactly. Any number of details in their story, which Saunders told over the phone and later recounted at the ranger station in Waco, should have spurred Wiley to dig deeper. Why did the men not drive straight to the Clifton Police Department with their discovery? Why did they enter the Bryan home by themselves, and what did they do inside? Why did they not call law enforcement from the Bryan's phone? But if Wiley pushed them to explain more, there is no record of it. Instead, he executed a search warrant on the Mercury shortly after midnight. The trunk was inspected and photographed, as was the car's clean interior, which showed no trace of mud that dirtied Saunders' boots. Saunders later said he cleaned the mud off with his pocket knife. The flashlight, whose lens stippled with reddish-brown specks, inked roughly the size of the tip of a pencil point, was taken to the state crime lab for further examination. Wiley did not impound the mercury. Instead, he released it to Blue once the search was complete, and Blue and Saunders returned to Clifton, leaving the mercury in the driveway of the Bryan home around 4 a.m. Three hours later, Blue was gone. He headed to Austin, where he boarded a flight later that morning, bound for Tampa. Which, I, I'm sorry, if I thought I found evidence that 
pertain to my sister's murder, I don't think I could board a flight three hours later after turning it over to the police. No. I mean, wouldn't you want to stay, find out more, ask more questions? I mean, you're obviously doing more than the police are because you're finding evidence. I don't know about you, but I would think then that, you know, I was hot shit and I'm going to find everything else out. Yeah. Like, why would you leave? To me, it's very suspicious. Hmm. We'll get into that. Nobody told Joe any of this. Everything that transpired during Saunders' visit, the discovery of the flashlight, the entry into Joe's home, the examination of his car by law enforcement was unknown to him when he picked up his keys at Mickey's parents' house that Sunday. At that point, the car had been out of Joe's possession for four days. The following morning, he called Chief Rob Brennan of Clifton Police Department to report a surprising discovery. On his way back to Elmont, Joe told Brennan he stopped to get gas. After opening the trunk to grab a fuel additive, he said he spotted a brown money bag which contained $850 that belonged to him. He then remembered putting it in there two weeks earlier when he and Mickey had driven to Waco to go shopping. In the mental fog he had been in since the murder, he had forgotten that he had taken the cash out of the metal box in the bedroom. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I know you're thinking what I'm thinking. Probably. If I let my brother-in-law borrow my car to drive around and find evidence why are you not going to fill up the car mm-hmm. i'm sorry <laughs> okay we're totally paths. <laughs> you're mad because he didn't fill the car up with gas yeah my thing is at this point hadn't the cops done looked at the car yes so did they not find that 850 dollars? would they have not reported that and you the brother-in-law think- would he not have said Oh, by the way, I found $850 in the trunk of your car. Because back then, $850 was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And so, at this point, the police had processed it. You know, I would have thought, and of course, this is back in the day, they didn't do things like they did now. I mean, why wouldn't they have taken it as evidence? You know, you find a flashlight that looks like it has blood on it. You have money in the back seat. That, to me, looks like complete motive for murder. You know, money. It's always money, sex, drugs. You know, and so, why wouldn't they have taken that? So, right now, I can see it's already botched, like, in my opinion. And Clifton is a very, very small town. And we know in small towns, police departments don't tend to get trained as well as bigger agencies, which is why they call in the Texas Rangers. That's what I was about to say. The Rangers were in there, and they're the elite law enforcement agency, and I'm not giving them a bad name. There are many, many very well trained i mean i'm assuming all of them are very well trained oh yes it's not easy but why why didn't you think of that right i'm sorry i mean immediately that stuff should have been confiscated joe should have been pulled in for questioning and asked you know okay what's with the money what's with this flashlight that looks like it has blood on it instead they don't tell him give him his car back and then oh by the way there you know he looks in there and there's still 850 dollars in there Mm -hmm. it's just suspicious to me it's very suspicious to me I'm not going to say anything else. I don't want <laughs> don't to. Don't spoil it. Yes. Wiley's search of the trunk had not turned up the money bag. However, when he heard Joe's story, he was certain that Joe was lying. He became even more suspicious when the results from the crime lab came back. The specks on the flashlight lens were human blood, type O, the same blood type as Mickey's, but not Joe's. Blood typing was the most precise tool that law enforcement had for such evidence before the event of DNA testing, though it was hardly definitive. Nearly half the population was typo blood. Whose blood it was could not be settled with any certainty, but from that point on, the investigators hurtled forward under the assumption that it could have come only from Mickey. 
A crime lab chemist also found a few tiny plastic particles on the flashlight that she said appeared to have the same characteristics as fragments of the birdshot shells that were found at the crime scene. Wiley felt confident enough in the evidence to believe that he had his man. On Wednesday, October 23, 1983, eight days after Mickey was found dead, Wiley, Brennans, and the Bosque County Sheriff appeared at the doorway of Thelma Bryan's door in Elmont. It was evening by then, and the men had arrived unannounced. Joe looked at them expectantly, assuming that they had come to tell him of an important break in the case. Instead, Wiley informed Joe that he was under arrest for his wife's murder. Are you serious? Joe said. He looked in disbelief at the three men who were standing in his mother's den. On what evidence? He demanded. He was not given an answer before he was put in handcuffs and led outside where a Waco TV news crew who had been tipped off to the arrest was waiting. And we all know who tipped them off. Uh, of course. Law enforcement. Of course. They want the attention. Oh, absolutely. You got a small town homicide like that. The second one. And the pressure to make an arrest. Yeah. Absolutely. In Clifton and among the farther flung group of young people who attended Clifton High School during the decade that Joe served as principal, the news of his arrest was greeted with incredulity. I remember feeling there had been a terrible mistake, said Kelly Carpenter Daniels, who was a senior at what is now the University of North Texas, when she learned that Joe had been charged with Mickey's murder. Joe had guided her through various high school crises and disappointments dispensing both encouragement and tough love when needed, while always assuring her of her intelligence and worth. He took a profound interest in all of our lives, she said. He was able to reach teenagers in a way that few adults could. There was a deep bond there, like there would be with a great coach. He was beloved. Carpenter Daniel's most indelible memory of Joe dates back to a day when she and a classmate decided to cut school and drive to Lake Whitney. That's a long drive. Isn't it from Clifton? I don't think it is. I think Can you take like a back way? There's a back way. Okay. And I want to say it's maybe 20 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Which is the only lake that I will swim in because I can see my feet. Okay. <laughs> the area's primary tourist attraction and a popular destination for anyone who dared to skip class. She and her friend were splashing around in the water when something caught her eye. She glanced up and saw Joe standing on the bluff above them in his suit, hands on hips, frowning down at them. The disappointment on his face is something I'll never forget, she said. He didn't raise his voice or say he was going to call our parents. He sat us down and told us that we were the leaders of the school and that leaders are supposed to lead. The fact that he bothered to make the 25-mile trip each way to ensure that she went to class and did not allow her grace to slip left a lasting impression. He was an instinctively caring and compassionate person, she said. I couldn't imagine him hurting anyone, much less murdering his wife. That says a lot for him as an educator that yeah. he would, you know, take it upon himself to drive there to let them know that he knew he was there and let them know that they did wrong. Because I'm sure that affected them any more than any disciplinary action at school would have affected them. Yeah, just you know? letting them know that he was disappointed. Right. And again, it shows his character and it shows that he cared. Yeah. You know, he was a caring educator. He wasn't just someone there for a paycheck. Right. Her feelings were shared by many of Joe's colleagues, who took it as an article of faith that he was innocent. I didn't have any employees at the time who felt he was capable of what he was accused of, said Richard Lyardon, the superintendent at the time. Joe was seen as lacking both the motive and the temperament to have committed such a brutal act. This was a man they knew well, and he had always been slow to anger. He was calm and easygoing. I never once saw him lose his temper, Johnny Paul Holmes, a special education teacher, said. 
Sometimes during the last period of the day, he would go to the choir room and just sit and play the piano. That was Joe. Making the charges seemed all the more impossible was the wildly held perception that the Bryan's marriage had been a harmonious one and that Joe had been a loyal and attentive husband. He was Mickey's champion and her protector, said Cindy Horn. I would have hated to have been the person who crossed Mickey and had to deal with Joe. Many of the Bryan's friends and co-workers were interviewed in the weeks after Joe's arrest and subsequent indictment. One of them was Klein, the fifth grade teacher who first noted Mickey's absence and who Wiley had brought in for questioning. As one of Mickey's few close friends, Klein, who now goes by her married name, Ellis, has seen the Bryant's relationship up close. I knew Joe could never hurt Mickey, Klein said. He adored her. There was no scenario in which Joe killing Mickey made any sense to me. At the police station, she was floored by Wiley's very first question, which left her troubled about both the direction and the soundness of the investigation. He began by asking me if I thought Joe was infeminate. She explained. He said there were rumors that Joe was gay and he asked me what I thought about that. Klein pushed back, but was unnerved when Wiley persisted with the lines of questioning. She was aware of just how incendiary such an accusation could be for a high school principal in a deeply religious, socially conservative town. We're talking about someone's life here, she implored the ranger. What precisely set in motion the... In God, why are there so many big words? What precisely set the... Mo <laughs> Yours is worse than mine. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm glad you picked the section you picked because those words are freaking huge. I think I ain't drinking. <laughs> <sighs> okay. What precisely set in motion the inquisition into Joe's sexuality is unclear, but it may have been something that Wiley discovered in the trunk of Joe's Mercury, a Chippendale's pinup calendar. Joe would later insist that it was a gag gift he and Mickey bought for a single friend of theirs. But investigators seized on the idea that Joe was gay, repeatedly probing the subject of interviews with his friends and colleagues. That's a huge accusation to make. Yes, it is. I mean, unless you have some kind of evidence. And a Chippendales calendar is not enough evidence to make. No. Suddenly, the very qualities that had endeared Joe to his community, his demonstrativeness, his warmth, the volubility, were cast in a different light. Homo tendencies, one investigator jotted during an interview, Similar observations were scrawled in notebooks and on scraps of paper that litter the case file. He gay, feminine acting, absolutely no sexual advances, but Joe is a toucher when talking to people. Joe would bake pies and cook, etc., rather than fish or play poker. One theory that investigators entertained was that Joe killed Mickey because she had discovered his dark secret. So because he likes to bake and cook makes him gay. Yeah. Instead of playing poker and fish. I mean, name one woman who wouldn't like a man that likes to bake and cook. Yeah. I mean, my husband likes to fish and play poker. But, but he likes to cook. He does love to cook. Yeah. So, and he's good at it. The known facts suggested nothing so unusual. Joe's phone records, which investigators obtained, revealed an ingloriously conventional existence. In the month before the murder, he called Mickey, his mother, his older brother, a a first cousin, a vitamin shop, a contact lens store, and a hospital. Nevertheless, investigators pursued the narrative that he had a secret gay life, and though no such rumors existed before the investigation, unfounded stories began to percolate of a supposed relationship with a male student and forays to New Orleans gay bars. So fevered did the speculation become that Brennan, the police chief, visited Linda Learden, the ex-wife of Richard Learden, at her real estate office to ask about the nature of Joe's relationship with the superintendent. 
This was an insinuation that Linda, who was recently divorced from Richard, found laughable. She said, quote, I told him, just because Joe plays the piano and drinks Dr. Pepper instead of beer doesn't make him gay. She informed the police chief that she thought he could use his time more judiciously, given that in her estimation, he had not solved one unsolved murder on his hands, but two. I like her. Me too. I mean, she pretty much told him like it was. Yeah. As every facet of his public and private life was held up to scrutiny, Joe, who was free on a $50,000 bond, kept a low profile. Electing to remain in Elmont, 40 miles away, he was put on paid leave after his arrest, and for the first time since his career as an educator had begun, his hours were no longer set to the familiar rhythm of the school day. His life narrowed to his mother's house and his defense team's office in Waco, where he and his attorneys, Charles McDonald and Lynn Malone, met to prepare for his trial. He seemed less concerned about the prospect of being found guilty, Linda Liarden said, than eager to move on. He just wanted the whole thing cleared up, she said. His attitude was, let's get this behind us so we can go look for who killed Mickey. Though many of his friends and colleagues pledged to testify on his behalf, Joe was always aware when he drove into Clifton once a week to check on the house and mow the lawn that he was suddenly and perhaps irrevocably dispossessed. With the exception of his next-door neighbors, who always greeted him warmly, people often kept their distance. Okay, so I'm just going to uh, confirm this. I've been saying the last name Liarden, and you said Liarden. So, I just want y'all to know, it's the same person. We're just saying it different. I'm probably saying it wrong. Um, Who knows? I could be saying it wrong. I mean, so, but Liarden is so much easier to say than Liarden, so... Oh. Okay. We'll Google that so the next episode we can make sure we're saying it properly. I'm probably saying it wrong. I'm just saying. Most painful to Joe was the rupture of his relationship with the Blues. Charlie filed a lawsuit to tie up Mickey's estate so Joe could not draw from her savings to pay for his defense, and Otis and Vera, lost in grief, cut off all communication. According to Joe, his pastor called that fall to relay the message that several members of First Baptist did not feel comfortable with him and his attendance and suggested that he hold off on coming to church until his case had been decided by the courts. Faith had always been the organizing principle of Joe's life, and the rejection left him adrift at the time when he needed spiritual support the most. His sense of abandonment was compacted when Richard Lyardon made the trip to Elmont in early 1986 to ask on behalf of the school board if Joe would tender his resignation. We don't know how long this is going to drag on, the superintendent told him. Anguished at the idea of surrendering his job, Joe protested, giving in only after Lardin persuaded him that doing so would be in his students' best interest. By then, the weight of his community's collective doubts was bearing down on him. In the course of just a few months, Joe had been stripped of everything, his career, his spiritual fellowship, his reputation, and the person he loved the most. He frequently visited her, driving out to the small white chapel near the farming community where Mickey grew up. In the cemetery there, he would stop at the granite marker that was etched with her name. What tormented him as he sat beside her grave was not the rejection of the people he loved or even the loss of the oneness that he said he and Mickey had shared, but his conviction that he had failed her. I would go and talk to her, he told me. I felt guilty because I didn't protect her. I'd always been there the whole 16 years of our marriage, her security blanket, for lack of another word. And in spite of everything I tried to do, I just couldn't save her. That's so sad. That is so very sad because they obviously had a wonderful relationship. And, you know, he was he was what he was supposed to be. He was her protector. Yeah. You know, and 
um, not only do you lose your wife, now this this town, which, you know, with small towns, they can be very judgmental. And the rumor mills get to go in, and they pretty much alienated him. His mm-hmm. church, his job, which, you know, I'm sure it had to be done on a legal aspect. He needed to, you know, resign. But I can't imagine what he felt um, feeling that rejection from someplace that they had made their home, you know. Yeah. And people they had made their friends. Yeah. And their church really family. Sad. And so... So that's where we're stopping tonight. Yes. Yes. Um, the next episode will be... The beginning of the trial, right? The beginning of the trial. Yes. Um, even a second trial and a little bit more information. Yeah. And then we'll see where we go from there. Absolutely. It's a lot of information. It is a lot of information. Um, but it's a good story. And may I suggest, don't Google this story because I think it will spoil it for you. Yes. And... I know it's going to be hard right now because you're probably going, oh my gosh, I want to know what happened. Who is this guy? But as an example, I am a little late to the game, but I started I started listening to the podcast Up and Vanished about Tara Grinstead, which was the Georgia beauty queen that went missing mm-hmm. um, years ago, 13, 14 years ago. Yeah, and a while back. Yes, yeah, so this guy did a podcast on her, and I had heard about it, and people had talked about it. Well... Then later on, there was like a break in the case. And okay, he kind of credited this guy. Well, I never really paid attention to the break in the case. So over the last few days, I've kind of been binge listening to Up and Vanished. And it's taking every bit of me not to Google to see what happened because I know it's there. But I kind of like listening to this podcast, not actually knowing what the outcome of it was. You know, I know there were some arrests made, you know, and I know a little bit of information, but listening to this podcast, it just keeps me wanting to go and go and go to the next episode because for me, it's still a mystery yeah. But for everybody else. They pretty much know what happened. And y'all, let me tell y'all, she is a Google queen. <laughs> I do. Google <laughs> makes a lot of money off of me. <laughs> I Google everything. So, um, it is really hard for me right now not to Google the Tara Grinstead case, but uh, but Up and Vanished is a really good podcast, too. I know they just started season two. Yes. And um, I, I'm not even close to that, so I don't even know what but that's I'm about listening. yet. <laughs> so Amy's on top of that one. Um, we also wanted to mention, Amy and I, you know, we are 911 dispatchers, and uh, we actually had a class today at our 911 office, which was probably one of the best classes I think that I've ever taken. I think it is the best class. Yes. It, it was so awesome. It was uh, called Dealing with Difficult People. The class was hosted by Adam Tim and Joe Sirio, uh-huh. um, who have the Healthiest Dispatcher website. They've also written several books. Um, if you are a dispatcher, they have a book on dispatcher stress, but Joe also has a book on time management, mm-hmm. which you don't have to be a dispatcher to read. Um, For sure. And so, anyways, if you are in law enforcement, or if you are a dispatcher, or if you know somebody... I mean, and here's my thing. It's not only for law enforcement. You know, that's a good point because the class itself, dealing with difficult people, it didn't have to be from a law enforcement aspect. Yeah, it could be retail. It could be teaching. Yes. I mean, it was more how you react to certain situations and how you deal with conflict yes. and stuff like that. It was yes. very and, good. Yes. And I think they reach out to us because, for one, Adam was an on one dispatcher. Yes. And so At he... At LAPD. Yes. Crazy man. <laughs> oh, man. I can't imagine the calls that they take yeah. there. Um, and Joe has his PhD in criminal justice. Yes. And so um, 
I think, you know, they reach up to us because I think we do tend to deal with more difficult people than the average, but For sure. there are so many difficult people situations, but, um, it was a great class and, and, uh, anyways, they have the books and like I said, if you're a dispatcher, you know, someone that's a dispatcher or someone that's in any kind of law enforcement, have them look them up. Um, because it was, it was really great. And, uh, we're yeah. very happy that we attended this class and I don't know about you, but I took some info from it and I'm going to try to deal with conflict differently. Mm-hmm. Um, not so much at work, but I also for home and I don't mean I have conflict at home, but with my children, right. um, it definitely gave me some aspects of maybe how I'm dealing with things with them in different ways that I can approach it. So that I'm getting a better reaction from them versus me just getting mad and yelling at them. Right. So. Or I know we even said, you know, too bad that there's not one like for children. Oh, yeah. Because it's not so much that, like, I don't have children, but, you know, I live with my sister and I'm around my nephews. But if children knew how to react in certain situations, I think it would be right. so much better. And I know that they kind of teach it in school, but it was just kind of like, Man, I learned a ton mm-hmm. from this. Yes. You know, what can they learn from it? There was a lot of things that they said today that um, I thought, man, I wish my eight-year-old could hear this. Right. You know, because um, he's kind of at that age where he likes to argue and, and, you know, he has the answer for everything. And when I try to talk to him about it, he, he gets upset. And then what naturally occurs, I get upset and then he's upset and then everybody's upset. And so, um, like I said, though, there were things that I picked up that I'm going to use at work, but also at home. And then in a sense, maybe that will help him start reacting differently to me. And then maybe it will kind of feed off to him. And of course, to my other three children that I have. So, um, I just using him for example, because he's, he's at that age. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so great class we wanted to kind of throw that in there we're not getting paid to promote them they didn't ask us to do this this is something that we wanted to do because um we really enjoyed them and really big time um, again it's not just for dispatchers i think it would definitely help with anybody in any kind of field of employment right and again it's the healthy dispatcher Mm -hmm. um com dot com yes dot com. i think they have a didn't you say they have a facebook page they do they have a facebook page i think they have a twitter page and um of course their website so uh-huh. you can always and go they're to that. super super nice people i they mean they were so personable yes so i'm sure if you had questions they would be more than willing to answer them absolutely they were just they were awesome they were they were cool guys i hope we're able to get them to host another class so on this and hey uh, interact with us facebook twitter yes um, you know, ask us questions, let us know what you think, give us your theories, um, yeah. anything like that. We really want some interaction. Yeah. I mean, I know that there are different Facebook groups for mm-hmm. different podcasts. Yes. And I noticed that, you know, some of them, there's like this whole long conversation about a certain case and we don't really have that. We maybe need to be a little bit more proactive in that. I'm not really sure, but I think it would be fun if we had like discussions and it doesn't have to be just about cases it can be about everyday life absolutely like, we can talk about anything that you want to talk about so definitely hit us up absolutely but if it's about crime that's a bonus because we love crime yes <laughs> we do and we love talking about crime so amy we are at officially 900 people have listened to us 900 oh, listeners my goodness but we only have 26 subscribed so folks subscribe so you know when we're sending out new podcasts and that way you can hear them immediately tell your friends to subscribe but that's 26 subscribed on 
Podbean? This is true. On Podbean. Amy's the iTunes person, so. I don't even know. We do have iTunes reviews. You want to hear them? I do. Okay. I didn't know what This will be fun. Okay. We have three reviews. Yay. One says, I love the banter between the two hosts, and they have good information about their cases. Worth a listen. Nice. Who is yeah. that from? Does it tell us who it's from? Um, it's a girl named Amy. Really? You gave us our own <laughs> review? Did you do that? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. Okay. Um, I believe this is April. Okay. Uh, and April, this is here's your episode. You've been asking for it. Yes. So here it is. Fun podcast to listen to. Love the stories. Thank you, April. We love you. Thank you. And this, J. McG052, do yourself a favor and subscribe to this pod. These girls are good. Yay, and so we don't know who thank that is. You, Jay McG. We don't know Amy either, do we? No. Amy thank you, in Amy. text. Yes, thank you guys for and our thank reviews. Thank you, April. Yes, April. Thank y'all. And um, yeah, so leave us a review. Be honest. Let us know what you like. And we'll put it out on the podcast. We will. We'll call you out. We're going to give you a shout out. That's what we're going to do. Yes. And so, um, yeah, this has been fun. It has been I, fun. This has been really fun. My kids are asleep before 930 tonight, <laughs> guys. So this is how this was able to happen on a Tuesday night. Um, yes. Other than that, um, we probably would have locked ourselves in the closet or something. So thank you guys again for listening. Again, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, send us messages interact with us on facebook we're going to try to interact more on facebook i know we kind of been a little mia but again that's with our busy schedules and um and sad story y'all amy and i have worked together for eight and a half years and she is leaving me in three days and she is journeying out to a new chapter in her life um which i am very sad about but also very happy for her at the same time because you totally deserve it you worked hard for your degree and i'm really gonna miss you and i'm trying really hard not to get emotional because you know i haven't talked about this because it's been really hard for me i know well it's been hard for me i mean jessica is one of my very best friends and we work together we podcast together yes i mean her kids are like my nieces and nephews (laughs) um so yeah but yeah i mean we have more time to see this each other. This is true. In the end, we're going to have more time because Amy's not going to be working until 10 o'clock at night. She's going to get off at 5 like a normal person. Yes. And so we actually may end up getting to spend more time outside of work together. But I am going to miss our daily chats at work and our sarcasm and um, making fun of people and, you know, all those things that we do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really going to miss that. Yes. That a lot. But if you get a chance, shout out to Amy on our Facebook. Send her a huge congrats for her new chapter in her life working uh, and not far from us but you know still close but uh, we're very happy for her and it's i still, wish you good things thank you it's still government related it is still government related so i can totally still we can still have these crime conversations totally yes yes so. all right guys so we've been rambling for quite a while now so we're gonna go ahead and let y'all go and thanks again for listening and we will see you soon bye guys <laughs>